We're continuing our reading from 1 Corinthians, and we'll be reading from chapter 7, starting at verse 1, which can be found a few pages over at 1150. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 7 on page 1150, starting at verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Wife, how do you know whether you will save your husband? Husband, how do you know whether you will save your wife? When you have a pagan culture, um, you are going to have all sorts of confusion around sex and marriage. And we know that, don't we? And think of the rainbow lanyards, and think of your colleagues, your neighbors, and think of the teachers at your children's schools. Of course, some of the confusion around sexuality is deliberate. And high-handed social engineers deliberately subverting the traditional family in order to remake society as a whole. And some of the confusion is enslaved, and people who are pursuing their own passions and pleasures. But some of it 
much of it is just clueless, a sort of well-meaning, misdirected attempt to do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. Once you have a pagan culture, you will have a proper model. And the Lord, in the book of Jonah, he describes the Ninevites as being a little bit like my um, three-year-old son. They don't know their right hand from their left. And if you don't know your right from your left, if you don't know which way is up, then even your attempts to do good will be misdirected. Now, welcome to 21st century London, and welcome to 1st century Corinth. Uh, we've been seeing over the last few months that Corinth is a completely pagan culture, and that in a pagan culture it takes time, real time, for the gospel call into the fellowship of the Lord Jesus to transform us as it should do. And partly, partly that's because the Corinthians were in a proper muddle. You can see that from the question that I've put on your handouts. Um, is the call to the fellowship of Jesus Christ a call out of the married relationship? Now, that is the question that Paul is addressing um, throughout our passage this morning in 1 Corinthians 7, 1 to 16. Uh, we'll see in a moment that it comes from the letter that the Corinthians have written to Paul. But if you pause to think, it is an understandable question for the Corinthians to be asking. Uh, last week, we were urged to flee sexual immorality. And William gave that illustration, an illustration I remember from at least a decade ago, um, of running away um, from a raging bull. I never, for one second, paused to ask the question, I wonder, how close could I get to these horns? It's a great image, isn't it? Fleeing means staying as far away as you can, running with all your might. How far? How far? We might think this is a bit daft, but in a thoroughly pagan Corinth that has no idea what to do with sex, you can understand why they might think that fleeing as far and as fast as you can means fleeing sex, marriage, family, and children altogether. And so, as a blanket statement, they have written in their letter, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Uh, plenty of Christian priests and monks have come to the same conclusion themselves. A radical commitment to holiness entails a turn away from sex and marriage and the family altogether. And so our question this morning, um, is the call to the fellowship of Jesus Christ a call out of the marriage relationship? Um, I understand that that might not be your question um, this morning. Um, here at St. Helens, we're committed to the work of expository preaching, which means that we take a book of the Bible and we start at the beginning and we work through and find out what the Lord God has to say to us. But I think this chapter will train all of us, um, married, thinking about being married, sure we will never be married. And um, I think it will train all of us this morning um, in, the, uh, in what authentic Christian holiness really looks like. And the answer that Paul gives in four parts is no. No, marriage is good, it is holy. And Christians will live out their call to holiness within their families. Uh, four points. Number one, sex in marriage is good. Uh, verse one. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, 
It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife doesn't have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband doesn't have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. Now, the basic point of these verses is very simple. And Paul quotes the Corinthians in verse 1, and it seems that some of them have come to the conclusion that any sexual activity between a man and a woman is wrong. And so Paul corrects them. No, he says, husbands and wives should have sex. It would be misguided out of a new super spirituality to deprive one another. I suppose, Paul says, I can just about imagine a scenario where you might agree to stay apart uh, to make a bit of time for your prayer. But even that, he says, is a concession and not a command. And don't draw it out too long, because sex in marriage is good. And there are so many potential minefields in a paragraph like this that it is perhaps worth spending a bit of time spelling out what Paul is not saying here. Um, I've got four. Number one. Paul is not making the case for husbands to go about demanding their conjugal rights. I mean, for one thing, it's a beautifully self-consciously symmetrical paragraph. Um, did you notice that he keeps switching the order um, as he goes through? Husband, wife, wife, husband, husband, wife, wife, husband, wife, husband, husband, wife. A husband belongs to his wife every bit as much as she belongs to him and vice versa. Uh, the great thing is that Paul isn't even trying to be woke um, when he writes this, because he doesn't even know what that means. Um, he just thinks that's the way that you have to explain it. Um, we belong to one another, um, and that goes both ways. But more than that, these just aren't verses about how to get an unwilling spouse to go to bed, or how to get your way. No, these are verses correcting people from withholding sex um, from their marriage partner in a misguided attempt to be godly. And so number one, Paul isn't encouraging us to demand our conjugal rights. Number two, Paul isn't addressing those situations where, uh, for whatever reason, um, a husband and a wife cannot have sex. And if Paul were addressing that situation, um, he would address it with he would urge and compassion and understanding. And thirdly, Paul isn't peddling the ghastly teaching um, that Mark Driscoll put forwards, that if a man commits adultery or gets addicted to internet pornography, it's his wife's fault for letting herself go or for having too low a libido. Uh, Christian husbands, if you have ever been tempted to think that, or if you have ever made your wife feel that, you need to repent and you need to start to take some responsibility for your own actions. But fourthly, Paul isn't begrudgingly permitting sex within marriage. Uh, yeah, I suppose it, it would be better if they could just keep themselves to themselves. 
But I suppose sharing a bed with your wife is better than sharing it with a prostitute. No, remember what he's addressing. The Corinthians think that the best way to avoid sexual immorality is to stay as far away from sex as possible. And Paul is channeling the consistent teaching of the Old Testament. The best way for a man to flee adultery or a woman um, is to enjoy your husband or wife. Uh, Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Rejoice in the wife of your youth, Solomon says. And if only he'd followed his own advice. A husband or wife does not flee sexual immorality by staying as far from sex as they can. They flee it by having sex with their husband or wife. And so Paul says, verse five, do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And even this, he says, I say as as a concession and not a command. Sex in marriage is good. And secondly, choosing to marry is good. Now, we'll come back to verse 7 in a bit. It's actually a tremendously important verse and very important in the chapter and the letter um, and easily misunderstood. We'll come back to it in a moment. Uh, Let's start with verse 8. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it's good for them to remain single, as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Again, um, the verses are often misunderstood. We we, we often read it as though Paul is begrudgingly accepting that under some circumstances, it might just about be better to marry. And again, uh, that is getting the emphasis in these verses all back to front. Uh, The bit that you should underline is the key charge in verse 9. Let them marry. Let them marry. It's true that the way that we have been called means that there are good reasons to be single. It's true that Paul himself is single, um, and we will have good time to devote to the goodness of singleness in two weeks. So we'll come back to it. Uh, Do make sure you, you come then. But when you remember that the Corinthians are avoiding marriage and leaving marriages and living half-heartedly within their marriages out of mistaken thoughts that any sexual contact in marriage is a compromise option and holiness for the half-hearted, what Paul is saying here is strong. Getting married is not a compromise step towards burning with passion. It is a step away from burning with passion. It is, for these couples, a choice to flee sexual immorality. Now, of course, getting married is not an instant fix to all sexual temptation. And if you're hoping that it will be and you're not yet married, um, you had better think again. Um, And if you are married, you probably already know that. But this is another strong affirmation of the goodness of marriage. Sex within marriage is good, and choosing to marry, even when it's a choice and you could do otherwise, that is good too. Actually, it's probably worth just pausing here for a moment to see just how full-blooded an endorsement of marriage and sex within marriage Paul has given. Last week, Paul talked about how shocking it is to take my body, a member of the risen Lord Jesus Christ, 
and to unite it with a prostitute. And that is shocking. But it's not shocking. It is not even slightly questionable to take my body, a member of the risen Lord Jesus Christ, and to unite it in sexual union with my wife. That is actually positively good. And thirdly, staying married is good, verse 10. Now to the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. Um, I think the point here is, is relatively straightforward. Um, although it is probably worth knocking on the head, um, the misconception that this is Paul's comprehensive treatment of the ethics of divorce and remarriage. Um, it's not. Um, he is uh, addressing a specific target here. Um, this thought that coming to Christ is a reason to put our marriages and our families to one side. And it's worth saying that, that this isn't Paul's comprehensive treatment of divorce and remarriage, uh, because, well, because there will be occasions where divorce is the right legal protection for a spouse, where a husband or a wife has catastrophically broken their marriage vows. And Christians do disagree on this, but actually I think that the Bible's teaching is fairly clear that there are occasions where, though a tragedy, divorce is a tragic necessity. And Paul is quoting from the Lord Jesus here. And Jesus himself names adultery as a reason for divorce. And there may be other marital wrongs that would, be, that would constitute grounds for divorce. And again, if that is something that you're personally wrestling with, that would be a very good thing to talk to one of us about. But here, Paul's point is that the call to belong to Jesus is not a call out of our marriages. On the contrary, the Lord Jesus himself calls us to remain in them. Verse 10, um, uh, <laughs> not the Lord, but I, he says. And then verse 10, the wife should not separate from her husband. And verse 11, the husband should not divorce his wife. And actually this is radical. In a pagan culture, where divorce was appropriate for all sorts of reasons, uh, where divorce might be the right response to a change of political allegiance or to a particularly good business opportunity or even to a badly cooked dinner. You might well have thought that having heard the call to belong to a whole new family and a whole new creation in fellowship with the Lord Jesus was a reason to leave our old families behind. The Corinthians were not the only Christians who have thought that. And Paul says, no, coming to faith in Jesus is not a reason to end your marriage. The family of God does not completely displace our natural families. In fact, fourthly, it's not even a reason to end your marriage with an unbeliever. I'm staying married to a non-Christian is good. Verse 12, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. 
For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you might save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you might save your wife? You can well imagine, can't you, that if you were converted in pagan Corinth so that you had a pagan husband and a house full of household gods surrounded by the sights and the smells and the sounds of idolatry, you can imagine how you might think that coming to Jesus and fleeing sexual immorality and pursuing holiness just means getting out of that house and getting out of that family. Actually, you might especially think that if you'd done the Bible overview Um, And you'd got to um, Ezra and Nehemiah uh, with their accounts of godly Israelite leaders calling Israelite men to divorce their their, their idolatrous foreign wives. But Paul says no. Actually, it's a remarkable paragraph. Uh, Verse 15, um, the, the unbelieving spouse may decide to go their own way. And in that case, you should let them. You're not enslaved. I mean, you should let them leave. But here are three reasons why, if it's up to you, if it is up to you, you should stay married. Number one, because your unbelieving family are made holy, verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. I don't think that Paul's arguing that the husband or the wife or the children should be presumed Christian. No, he's saying that these relationships are a place for Christians to exercise their holy temple service. A Christian is every bit as able to be a saint set aside for God's service in an unbelieving household with an unbelieving husband and unbelieving children as in a monastery. But just think of that. A pagan, idolatrous home is a place where a Christian husband or wife can serve their family with as much sanctity as the high priest entering into the most holy place. Number one, if it's up to you, stay married and because your unbelieving family are made holy. Secondly, Stay married because God has called us to peace, verse 15. And God has called you to peace. And again, I don't think that's a reason to let them go. And I think Paul is now back to the main point of the paragraph, why you should stay married. And we'll come back to this next week. But the Christian call is not about turning the world upside down. It's about putting things back the right way up. And so lots of the time, Christians will be agents of stability, of peace, not revolution. I suppose you might say it's a revolutionary revolution. God has called us to peace. And thirdly, you should stay married and because you might actually save your unbelieving husband or wife. Verse 16, again, I think it's positive, not negative. How do you know, wife, whether you might save your husband? How do you know, husbands, whether you won't save your wife? There is a genuine possibility 
that the Christian husband or wife who stays in a hard marriage, and it will be hard, in a non-Christian home, might do even more than live a godly, holy, sanctified life. They might actually bring salvation. And so, Paul says, staying married to a non-Christian is good. Now, it's probably worth pointing out here that this is most certainly not a mandate for flirt to convert. Nor is this an encouragement for Christian young people to pursue or to continue in relationships with non-Christians. When I was a student, um, I'm afraid to say I did spend some time seeing a non-Christian girl, and at some point she stumbled on this passage, um, and she opened it up with me, she read the Bible with me, uh, to persuade me that it was a good thing that I kept seeing her. Now, it's understandable why she took it that way, but that is not what Paul is saying. Uh, We weren't a family, uh, we weren't married, and so the word that I needed to hear was the one from the end of the chapter. Uh, When you're choosing who you should marry, uh, make sure that it is in the Lord. Make sure that it is a Christian. And if you are currently pursuing a relationship with someone who doesn't belong to Jesus, you shouldn't take this passage as an encouragement. Paul would not encourage you. But if you are married to someone who doesn't know Jesus, this is the most tremendous encouragement. Your home life is not hopeless. It is holy. It is a fitting place for sanctified temple service. It is a mission field. It is a place where you can honour God wholeheartedly. And all other things being equal, it is good to stay in that marriage. Well, let's draw things together. Is the call to the fellowship of Jesus Christ a call out of the marriage relationship? And Paul's aim in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is to secure our undivided devotion to the Lord Jesus. And he wants us to be radically committed to the fellowship of the Lord Jesus. He wants us to be radically committed to holiness. Actually, that is the point of verse 7, which I'm afraid to say I'm not sure the translators have done a very good job on. Uh, Verse 7, where they've put, I wish that all were as I myself am. I think Paul's saying something much stronger. I want all people to be like me. I want all people to be like me. It's not an unfulfillable wish. I wish that you could be like me, but you can't. It's not actually about singleness. Oh, that you could all know the joys of the bachelor life. Paul wants us to be like him. He says it here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 7. He says it in chapter 4, be imitators of me. He says it again in chapter 11, be imitators of me. He wants you to be like him. But that's the point of the rest of the verse. I want all people to be like me. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. You don't be like Paul by being single. That's a misconception. You be like Paul by being wholly devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ. And whether you're single or whether you're married, that's a gift. And that's just a matter of circumstance. You imitate Paul by being devoted to Jesus. And so Paul's aim is our holiness, our undivided devotion to the Lord Jesus. And that is what God has called us to. But that is not a call out of marriage or out of the structures of this creation. 
And for a muddled culture like ours, that is confusing. We're called out of immorality, but not out of marriage. We're called out of wickedness, but not out of this world. And we're called out of idolatry, but not out of worship. A pagan culture finds these distinctions very hard to make. We should be more committed to holiness than any monk. But authentic holiness, Christian holiness, is quite as much at home in the family as it is anywhere else. Christians so often get this wrong. A large parts of the church have assumed for much of the last 2,000 years that if you were really committed to godliness, you would stay single and celibate. Actually, there was a time where some of that teaching um, that I'd heard um, from evangelicals on this chapter made me feel that way. And when Christians believe that the really holy uh, take vows of celibacy as priests or monks or preachers, it is hugely damaging. It's damaging all too often for those who take those vows of celibacy because it turns out that the Bible is right. That the best way to flee sexual immorality often isn't to try to hold God's good purpose for sex and marriage at arm's length. Um, Any number of sexual scandals involving men who have sought holiness by taking vows of celibacy as monks or priests or vicars uh, rather makes the point, doesn't it? It's damaging for those who don't take the vows. For although we say we believe in holy matrimony, you do know that that's what this is talking about, right? Although we say we believe in holy matrimony, those who are married all too often assume that they have opted for the second tier of consecration to Jesus. Are they left behind any prospect of the really consecrated life when they exchange their rings? And so now all they can do is bumble along half-heartedly, looking up to the real heroes who've embraced the higher life. But the fellowship of Jesus is a fellowship of very ordinary heroes. And from one angle, extraordinary in their commitment to goodness. But in another, very ordinary. It's damaging for those who take the vows. It's damaging for those who don't. But most of all, it is damaging for the gospel. Because it makes a mockery of the goodness and the faithfulness of God. The basic structures of the world that God created, marriage, children, labor, work, are things that you need to escape to live a life that really pleases God and honors him. That's the implication, and it's wrong. Authentic biblical holiness ought to be at home in this creation. Not worldly, but at home in this creation. It most certainly ought to be human. Christians ought to be the most fully rounded human beings out there. We should be people who make sense of the creation that we live in. People who look just a little bit like we might fit in the Garden of Eden. And anything that belongs in the Garden of Eden is good. If we imply that the call to the fellowship of Jesus Christ is a call out of the structures of this creation, we will make gods look unfaithful, unwise, and unkind. And in the end, and it's happened again and again, we will bring the gospel into disrepute. And so here's a muddle that we must avoid. We've been called into the fellowship of Jesus Christ. And that is a call out of idolatry, immorality, injustice, self-service, 
arrogance, divisiveness, every sort of worldliness. We must flee those things. The call of the gospel is quite radical. But it's not a call out of our marriages. Paul insists, marriage is good. There's more to say. There's a broader principle, and we'll come to that next week. There's the goodness of singleness, and we'll come to that the week after. But for now, let's be clear. The theater of our holiness is out there in the world. Um, I spent some time with some Benedictine monks the other week. Uh, don't worry about me. Uh, we are not an order of Benedictines, and, neither, and I didn't join them. Uh, we are not an order of Benedictines. We are the order of King Jesus, sanctified, holy, set aside for his service, consecrated. And the theater of our holiness is out there in creation in families and homes, with our children, in our workplaces. That is what it means to be called to the fellowship of the living Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you have radically sanctified us by calling us into the fellowship of your Son, the Lord Jesus. We praise you for the way that you have sanctified us for a future day of new creation hope with new bodies in a day that lasts forever. And we want to acknowledge that you have set us aside from the world to belong to Jesus, our God and our King. We pray that you protect us from being muddled about what that does and doesn't mean. We pray that you would help us to flee idolatry and to flee immorality but we pray that you would help us to glorify you in our homes, in our families, and especially for those of us who are married in our marriages. And where the teaching of this passage is hard for some of us, we pray that you'd give us humble hearts that are willing to hear it. And we want to pray that you would help us to be radically committed to living lives that honour you in holiness and purity and love. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.